This week on Life and Faith. I mentioned the guy who works with methamphetamine addicts. So when he was in jail and addicted and, you know, it must have been terrible. Now he's got this fantastic personal growth, service, helping people. They're the things that are a benefit. To be human means to long for that which goes beyond the human. Beyond a certain limit, they stop being good. It's a picture of grace. I can't be absolutely dogmatically certain about anything. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. Bruce Robinson has had a front row seat to human suffering for most of his adult life. A professor of medicine and an expert in asbestos-induced cancer, mesothelioma, he has had to break terrible news to people hundreds of times. As a doctor, he has assisted people in cyclone-ruined cities, tsunami-ravaged countries, particularly the Boxing Day tsunami, or earthquake-devastated poor regions of Indonesia. Other things to know about Bruce, Uh, he founded The Fathering Project and has written best-selling books on fatherhood and has won a bunch of awards, including Western Australian of the Year in 2013. Bruce is a former, very successful Australian rules football coach in the Western Australian Football League. Anyway, I could go on. He's an amazing character and a good friend of ours at CPX, and he's just put out a book on suffering called Behind the Tears – understanding, surviving, and growing from suffering. So we thought we'd better talk to him about that. I spoke with him from his office in Perth in Western Australia. Bruce Robinson, it's great to see you there. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Simon. Nice to see you. Congratulations on the book. Now, this is an unusually practical guide to people who are either experiencing suffering themselves or who are caring for someone who's suffering And also, in many ways, it sort of prepares us all for the inevitability of suffering. You really wanted this to be useful to as many people as possible, right? Yeah, that's right. There are plenty of books on suffering, theological books and philosophical books, but uh, this is a practical book. And to be honest, Simon, I did not want to write it, but just that I work at the coalface of suffering. And so uh, I've been asked to talk about it quite a number of times, and I've been sort of forced by other people to write this book (laughs) but i'm really really delighted with it because it is very practical and very i think useful for people who are in the midst of suffering or who are caring for people who suffer or you know communities of people who have someone who suffers and they don't know what to say you know it might be a church or a workplace or a school parent group or whatever now when i consider the ways in which you have interacted directly with profound human suffering. It's sort of hard to know where to start, but I want to start with natural disasters. Now, as a doctor, you've assisted people in cyclone-ruined cities, tsunami-ravaged countries, or earthquake-devastated poor regions of Indonesia. And that's one kind of suffering that you talk about in your book. It's confronting in terms of the sheer scale of loss. You must feel that when you've been in these places. Yeah, I do. Um, it's hard to describe what it's like to go to, for example, Aceh, where I went five times after the Boxing Day tsunami. And pretty much, Simon, 
you're kind of busy. You know, you just get up in the morning and you, there's so many needs and you get, you know, you go and you get in the vehicles and you go somewhere or the helicopters and you just get working hundreds of patients and you don't kind of get too much time. But it's when you do have a moment, particularly in the evening, um, to think about it, it, you know, the enormity. Talk about a tsunami. It's a tsunami of grief. You know, a million people having lost and innocent, you know, they didn't ask for the tsunami. And so dealing with the overwhelming grief, that's the challenge for workers. And there's a lot of PTSD for people who work in those places. Yeah. What are the things that most stick out in your memory in these moments when it comes to sort of understanding human beings and what we are like? Well, lots of things, really. I'll give an example. So when we were working up in Aceh, it was an Indonesian team, so it wasn't foreigners, it was an Indonesian team. Nevertheless, and I was the only foreigner, 100 Indonesians. But we didn't want to intrude on their sadness because every single person, Simon, had lost someone. And I mean a mother, father, husband, wife, children, or mixture of those. Every single person. So, you know, it was kind of hard. You, you just knew that everyone was grieving. And they did not talk to each other. Anyway, so we had a little discussion and decided that when grief is so widespread, there's even less chance they're going to share. I mean, if someone in the street loses a child in a car accident, then other neighbours can gather around. So the failure of people to be able to talk about their problems was really disabling. And so that's when we decided that we needed to be the outsider who was entering into their sadness and talking to them. And it really worked well. I mean, they just found someone who they could talk to. Yeah. Although it paid out on us. And I think that's an example. You know, if, if people just can't talk, they need someone from the outside to talk to because it's kind of hard to talk to other people. You know, this is like that story, Simon, where people are more likely to say to somebody next to them on the bus that they've never met some deep problem than they are to say to people they work with or family members. Now, you've, you've kind of wrestled with faith your whole life. And it's an enduring faith. But have your experiences in these places tested that faith? I'm, I'm sure it must have at some level. Actually, not really. I think I dealt with the issues of uh, faith and science and suffering a while ago. So I don't actually say, why does God allow this? And, and I've seen, you know, certainly in my work as a doctor, you know, the most awful you know, how could God possibly allow this? You know, you know, a number of, like I can think of three young pastors with young kids who have gotten cancer. This is ridiculous. You know, young kids, this is just appalling. Like God not only has no sense of humour, but a maliciousness. Um, that doesn't rattle my faith. I think issues like that, other people have their faith rattled by suffering. But, Simon, that's not usually an intellectual thing. That's an emotional thing. Yeah. But, no, it doesn't rattle my faith. Um, and I know that the fact that I'm a strong Christian, but that I see probably more suffering than 99.9% .9 of the population at the coalface, and that I'm still a Christian, is encouraging to people. Yes, well, definitely yeah, makes them ask the question. We might ask a few of them today, but you are a physician, you're a specialist in lungs and cancer, and you've had more than your more than your share of exposure to very sad stories. It's kind of thrust you into this sort of front row of seeing how people confront their mortality. What are people like in that situation? 
It, uh, Simon, varies quite a bit. So I guess the, the most poignant thing that I do is to tell someone they're going to die. So typically someone will come to see me, they've got a shadow on their lung, an x-ray, whatever, and I, I have to you know, do all the tests and biopsies and find, you know, scans and what have you, and then uh, they come to see me. I always get them to come to see me at a designated time with their partner or somebody else close. Yeah. It's a terrible thing to get the news by yourself. And I can feel the anxiety and tension. They sit there and I'm looking at the scans and I'm reviewing everything and making sure I've got it clear in my head. And, you know, the anxiety they feel is enormous. And I turn to them and I have to tell them that I'm sorry, but the result isn't very good, that it's cancer. And then, uh, you know, there's a bit of information about the fact that it's spread in their liver and their bones or what have you. Um, how do they react? Yeah, squeeze each other's hand. They uh, usually cry, not always. Sometimes I cry, especially if they're young, but, you know, I cry too sometimes. I don't mind. Weep with those who weep. And then, then there's a variety of ways that they respond. Some people go immediately into denial and don't want to know anything, denial and avoidance, and don't want to know anything more. Other people would like to know everything, including how long they've got to live and everything in between. I would have done that hundreds of times, Simon, that particular job, hundreds of times, telling someone they're going to die. The most poignant thing and intimate thing a doctor can do with any patient. Mm. It must be a, an art to doing that well too. Well, there is a best practice. In fact, for 25 years, I was in charge of the course in the medical school, teaching students how to break bad news and... Mm you know, the front end, if you like, of cancer, rather than the palliative care back end of cancer, if you like. No, there is a best practice. And to be honest, I didn't do a great job of it early on when I was a young consultant, but I learnt best practice, and I actually consider it a privilege now, Simon, to do that, because I know it can be done really badly, and it was done really badly to a friend of mine recently, really, really badly. Worst example. And sometimes, Simon, patients say to me, not very often, they say, well, this must be hard for you, you know, like this is terrible for us, but you must do this all the time, so this must be hard for you. Very empathic mm. for them to say that. And I say, yes, it is, but I consider it a privilege. Now, we mentioned before, you've, your book's very practical. You've written it in some large degree for people of faith, but it's certainly applicable to anyone. Let's talk about some of the these practical parts. What are things that don't help. I mean, there's lots of these, but what are some things that don't help when you know that someone is suffering? Yeah, you're right. Most of it's generic. I mean, anyone could pick this book up and read it. The faith thing is just because people of faith say, how could God let this happen to me? Yeah. That's the sort of extra level. Of it. Oh, well, I think, you know, if you can imagine a workplace and someone's child has died, or maybe they've got a diagnosis of terminal cancer, a workplace or a church community, there's a, you know, the book has lots of things that people say that are unhelpful. And maybe I'll just pick one category, which is anything that's about you. <laughs> I feel devastated. I feel this. I am so shocked. Yeah. I don't know how I could, you know, anything that's about you is utterly, in the end, selfish. And even sometimes, to be honest, with the best of intentions, people try to ease the pain. They say, I'm sure it can't be as bad as that, or I'm sure you'll be healed, or I'm sure this. Yeah. Everything's about them. 
And most of those phrases are at a minimum, Simon, unhelpful and even often hurtful. Yeah. And learning the things that are helpful versus hurtful is really important. Another common phrase is, if there's anything I can do, let me know. Well, people who have got a diagnosis of cancer haven't got the energy to go and ask people to do stuff. So one of the tips there is uh, you basically appoint a quarterback. It might be, you know, the partner or a good friend or somebody. And that quarterback then handles all questions. So when someone says, anything I can do, the quarterback then runs a program. You know, you can do the shopping, you can take the kids to gymnasium, you can take the kids to school, you can pick the kids up from school, right? You have a roster. You can take me to the clinic appointment or whatever, you know, all sorts of things. It's very common, anything I can do. Actually do something. <laughs> yeah. Make sure there's a quarterback who can sign you up to do something. One of the things that, or one of the common reactions, and you do, you do mention this in the book, and I've seen it myself, uh, is that when someone's suffering, people avoid them because they don't, they don't know what to say. They feel like they'll say the wrong thing. You've suggested this isn't the most helpful way to go. Yeah, and again, not, not to criticise people because you don't often get, I mean, it's okay for me, I do this hundreds of times, but, you know, most people don't get a chance to learn uh, about this. So they think they're going to say the wrong thing and so they avoid the situation. And, of course, it's emotionally laden too. So, you know, I, I've had patients where you know, they come into hospital and they have 10 visitors a day. And then they get diagnosed, they've got cancer, they're going to die, and they go home and they come and see me a few weeks later. I said, how many people have been to see you? None. Yeah. They text, oh, really busy, catch up sometime. You know, it's just, it's not helpful. And what's helpful is if they don't know what to say, is to go and say nothing. Just to sit there and say, hey, do you want to watch the footy together or the cricket or you want to read the paper? Well, if I just read the paper together, I'll just be there with you. You don't have to say anything. In fact, better not to say anything if you feel the urge to say something inappropriate with the best of intentions. Yes, and I loved how you really tease this out in the book and try to give people sort of practical help. It's true, true that um, different people will, will respond very differently to suffering too, won't they? So they'll... Some will want more people around, some will uh, need less of that. Well, some will need less, some will want less, even though they need more. Mm. Men in particular are disabled by having a Y chromosome and consequently they're not really good at sharing their feelings. I think this is a kind of a biological survival thing, you know. You propagate your genes by winning wars and winning wars you have to sort of suppress your feelings. But there comes a time when you do have to share them and men have to learn how to do that, especially with each other. This is Life and Faith and I'm speaking with Professor Bruce Robinson about human suffering, a topic he is intimately acquainted with. His latest book is on this topic. It's called Behind the Tears, understanding, surviving, and growing from suffering. He makes the point about the inevitability of suffering for all people, which doesn't sound too promising, but I did want to know if there are good ways that we can prepare ourselves for that reality. This is what he had to say. Well, you don't sort of really want to dwell on it too much. One of the things about Christian life is that you are promised that you are going to suffer. Mm. It's really annoying 
the two things are annoying. One is the inevitability of it. Christianity differs from other religions in that regard because Christianity says this is actually part of the journey. You will suffer, but you will grow from suffering. Well, first of all, you will survive. As hard as it seems, you will survive and grow and be a better person. And there's a phrase that I use in my book, which I use a lot. Grief handled badly makes people bitter. Grief handled well makes people better. Mm. I have seen this so often. And in terms of your question, how can you be ready for it? If you know it's inevitable, then you know that when it happens, there is a right way to handle grief and suffering, and there is a wrong way. And if you handle it the right way, then um, it makes people better. Actually, Simon, I had a flashback yesterday. That a guy in his 50s, a neighbour, friend of mine, came around. He was dying. Yeah, in a week or so to live, came and sat at the table outside our house. And he said, uh, well, like everybody, he was afraid of dying in pain or breathlessness. So I was able to reassure him there. But he was afraid that his kids would be forever scarred by him dying while they were still young. Mm. And I said, there will always be a hole in their heart, something missing, because they lost their dad early. But the way you've handled your death, you have talked to those kids and spent time with them. You haven't pretended you're not dying. You've talked to them and got them ready for it. They will be better for it. And as hard as it is for you to face this reality that you won't see them growing up, they will be enriched in their lives. They'll be more compassionate, more wise, all sorts of ways that they will be better for the way that you have handled your cancer. And the opposite, you see people who deny their cancer, they are bitter at the hospital, they're bitter at the doctors, they're bitter at God, and the kids end up sharing that bitterness and get locked into a prison of bitterness for the rest of their lives. And you don't have to look far to see that. Listen to the news every night and they'll put the microphone in front of someone who is locked in the prison of bitterness. There's a good way to handle it and a bad way to handle it. And if you get it right, it can make you better. I feel like in uh, reading your book that you are kind of alert to the possibility of uh, the experience of suffering, uh, having the effect of opening up aspects of life to people that were maybe undernourished previously. Have you seen that happen? I see it happen often. So... For example, a busy young parent or middle-aged parent, they're busy, 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 and then they uh, get told they're going to die, I've got six months, 12 months to live, and they reorganise their life. And they do things that they have been postponing. You know, they might go and visit somewhere, Uluru or Paris or something. But also, for the first time in their life, they see life as a gift. Every day is a gift. Mm. And they notice that the leaves on the trees are green. They've never noticed that before. They've rushed past them. They notice that the sky is blue. They've never noticed that before. It's a beautiful blueness. And they begin to notice things and appreciate every day as a gift. And as bad as it is, the fact they're going to die and not have any more, to appreciate every day as a gift is actually something that most people don't do in their rushing, 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 busy life. Mm. And their partner, uh, friends, can do the same thing as they join in that process. The other way, of course, is people are busy, you know, looking after their kids and making a career and 
what have you. And there is a way in which, well, either the person who suffers, if they survive the suffering, or they still got the suffering, like a disability, or um, the partners can turn it into something that helps other people. So they might not have been someone who thought, I'm going to serve the community. But the experience of suffering draws out of them a desire to make the world a better place. And in the book, I've listed a bunch of examples of that. And in fact, just yesterday, I was talking to a friend of mine who was not only a methamphetamine addict, but he was in jail because he was a pusher. And he uh, now runs the most successful methamphetamine recovery group, Shalom House in Western Australia. A wonderful guy, Peter Lyndon James. And, uh, you know, he could have been in jail physically and mentally, but he found in, in himself a compassion to turn it around for other people. Now, the book has emerged out of your experiences of working with people who've suffered terribly, but you've experienced your own suffering. You've had people close to you suffer. I wondered, you know, how much of this writing of this book was drawing on experiences that have also been a huge help to you when you've had these times. Yeah, I think most of it's come from my work as a doctor, but you're right. I mean, (laughs) there's a kind of an authenticity to it. Um, Yes, my wife had breast cancer, who's on chemo, etc. Here's a great irony, and you can't help but think uh, this isn't a coincidence, but I decided to on a Friday afternoon, to take a week off. So Friday at five o'clock, I depowered my computer at the office here and went home and I thought I'll spend a week and break the back of this uh, suffering book. 5 p.m. on a Friday. 6 p.m., the tsunami hit central Sulawesi. Earthquake and tsunami. My team that I work with regularly in Indonesia are on the phone. You guys have got this, you know, hoping that I could not go this time. Mm. And they said to me, Bruce, to be perfectly honest, we need you. Um, the team is worn out from the Lombok earthquake and, you know, like you, you can hit the ground running, you speak the language, you can work quickly, see hundreds of patients, you can mentor the young people. We really, really, really need you. And I honestly thought of the Good Samaritan where there's this robber bleeding on the side of the road and a couple of priests walk by. They're too busy doing good things to help someone in need. So I kind of smiled at myself and thought, this is ridiculous, you know. So off I went. And it was the most grueling of those trips I have ever done. Yeah. So it took me you know, a while to get, to get the book written. But the experience of suffering at the time that I was writing the book helped me to really think through what I was writing. And it was more authentic, I think. Well, no, not I think. It was definitely more authentic. And even the meditations that I've written in there, I was practicing them every day myself. We've talked about this topic before, Bruce, but it's certainly not the, the whole of your life. Like you've had lots of, there's a lot of joyful things in your life too. But I'm wondering what the way in which sort of suffering sits alongside, as it so often does. So it just sits in a lot of like parallel tracks alongside really joyful, wonderful things. That's an interesting part of human experience. Yeah, it's an interesting comment. Yeah, no, my life is full of joy. I mean, uh, I'm fortunate I've got a wonderful job, a wonderful wife, kids, grandkids, really close friends, and massive involvement in sport and uh, other things, um, and the fathering project, of course, which we've discussed before. Um, yeah. 
brings me massive joy. In fact, the capacity of the fathering project to transform the lives of dads, which has happened you know, all over the country now, it, it warms my heart and gives me huge joy. And I get tears of joy sometimes as blokes tell me how their lives have been transformed. Actually, Simon, interestingly, both the Fathering Project and this book come out of the same incubator, which is sitting there talking to cancer patients, Yeah, which we've talked about. But it's sitting there talking to dads who are going to die because I never then abandon them to oncology and radiotherapy. I always stay with them for the journey. And they tell me, um, you know, if they had their time all over again, that have spent more time with their kids and they wish someone had told them when they were young dad how important it was and, you know, um, how to sort of cut back on work and be a good dad. They just wished someone had told them. And that was the trigger for me to write my first book and then start the fathering project. So they come out of the same place. Now, Bruce, what is the most powerful thing your Christian faith offers you in the face of these great struggles and, and heartbreaks that you're so often exposed to? Um, I think it gives me um, a way to, on the one hand, explain the why to people. I mean, one of the, I, what I call the three ins, people assume they've done something wrong. It's a natural human tendency, though, if you know, upset the gods. Mm. It's a primitive way of thinking. So they think they've done something, something they've done wrong. Of course they've done something wrong. They had an affair with their secretary or something 20 years ago and their kid is disabled because of that. It is not true. So understanding that innocence, you can be innocent. You don't doesn't have to be a reason. Mm. It's very important in the Christian faith. The fact that you're never going to totally understand it is very clear in the Christian faith. And people really get upset if they don't understand why. But in Christianity, you can actually, it's not incomprehensible, but it's incompletely comprehensible. And the inevitability of it, I think, I mean, I, you know, in Christianity, Jesus was in the garden, they captured him, they really belted him around and put nails, killed him on a cross. You think, well, why didn't they just, why didn't he just get, he had to die. So why did he just get stabbed in the garden and die on the spot, bleed to death? Why did he have to suffer? Suffering is part of Christianity, so it does help in terms of understanding it. But in terms of coping with it, Christianity has huge, huge things. You know, the notion that you cannot be destroyed, you know, the essential you cannot be destroyed in this life or the next. The fact that Jesus understands suffering, and that's one of the things about why he had to suffer. Simon, most people who suffer don't have anyone who really understands them. I mean, you think about a soldier with PTSD. Yeah, I don't want to talk to anyone. Or a policeman who's come across a school bus crash with 10 bodies there. People don't understand unless they've also, you know, another policeman has done that or another soldier. So people can really only relax and talk to someone who understands. Well, Jesus understands. He's been there. Um, the fact that you're loved. A lot of people don't feel any love, not real compassion. And the fact that you're going to grow. I mean, honestly, people think this is just the worst thing in the world, whereas in Christianity, you know that you will grow from it. You know that you will not only grow, but that you will help other people by your suffering. And it is annoying and it is hard to deal with and it's at the time shocking, but it is another advantage of Christianity that you are promised that you will personally grow from it and you will help other people. 
like Peter, I mentioned the guy who works with methamphetamine addicts. So when he was in jail and addicted and, you know, it must have been terrible. Now he's got this fantastic personal growth, service, helping people. They're the things that are of benefit. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. Bruce Robinson's book on this topic is Behind the Tears, Understanding, Surviving and Growing from Suffering. And the best place to get that is at his website, brucerobinson.com.au. We recommend it, especially but not only for people who are suffering right now or caring for someone who is suffering. As always, thanks today to our producer, the irrepressible Alan Douthwaite. Next week. I feel like the way that Tolkien approaches his writing is something that makes him so universally loved because he isn't trying to push anything on you. It's just a really, really good story. And the messages of like hope, courage, and fate, they're kind of universal.